0: different <laughs> <Jeez. laughs> all right um, we're going to uh, begin uh, three weeks as uh, is a tendency for us we underestimate drastically um, so <laughs> it's not going to be two weeks like we talked about uh, we'll be in three weeks in hosea um, we're going to be flying today um before I get into kind of where we're going, I have a few announcements uh, that I want to share with you. Um, the first is if you are new here today or you're not yet involved in a home gathering, um, we want to invite you to take part in those on your uh, bulletin. There's, there's the times for that. There's also cards at the welcome table in case you ever want to give one to a friend or something. Um, you are more than welcome to take those and use those as reference points for that. We have them one on Tuesday night, and then we have two on Wednesday nights um, at different locations that you can check out. Uh, So we encourage you to go there um, for some further application, um, particularly for this series. There will be much more application in the home gatherings um, than you will receive from me on Sunday. Uh, But also, uh, we are going to um, be heading to Haiti again. We have our team selected. I don't think that's been (laughs) announced to That is yet. Um, But regardless, between now and their departure, We'll be collecting uh, basic medical supplies just like we did last year. It's the same stuff uh, that we were trying to collect. Um, and we used a lot of it just while we were there, let alone what we are actually able to stock them up for. Um, so please please be thinking about what you can do um, to assist us in this. Anytime you go to Walmart or Meyer or, or Kroger, just maybe pick up another supply or two every time you go for some groceries. Um, next week, we will be going to First Baptist Church, Hubert Heights. Um, If you have signed up for the Trinity class on the website, um, you can join us for that. If you still want to go, there's time to sign up. Um, Please try to do so before Wednesday, though. Uh, Give us a better idea of who's going. Uh, We'll be leaving from here on um, Sunday and we'll make sure that you have all the details um, next Sunday before uh, we get ready to leave. We'll let you know. Uh, Last thing, nursery workers uh, or anybody who is interested in becoming a nursery worker in the future or, or a children's worker in general. Um, there is a meeting for you guys today, um, and/or next week, uh, from twelve forty-five after we conclude service until one p.m. Um, please attend one of those meetings if you are interested in being a children's worker. Uh, I want to encourage you to go to that. It'll be a good time uh, to kind of uh, learn what they do um, and, and to also plug in and get involved. So, with that, um, let's let's talk about Hosea this series is going to be uh, different than what we've been doing in Colossians um, before Ecclesiastes. It's going to be different than Ecclesiastes. Um, We need to understand that we're coming to a different genre uh, particularly and as we go to a different genre we have to approach the text in a way that is respectful to um, how it should be interpreted. So before coming from a more wisdom literature or poetic nature of Ecclesiastes, it was very philosophical, right? All the stuff that we were doing was, was ideas. It was talking about the way that the the earth is, could be, should be, the way man is, the way he thinks, what he does. Very philosophical in nature, and that allowed us to preach it in such a way of um, just the exposition being what is he trying to say, followed by how do we apply that in its immediate context, uh, and then ultimately how do we apply it in our context. So, going from that to then uh, prophetic um, literature, we have different interpretive rules. Um, the first one is uh, understanding judgment uh, prophecies. Judgment prophecies in Scripture are basically always conditional. So, anytime, let's take Noah for, or I'm sorry, Jonah for example. Um, you guys familiar with Jonah and the big whale, right? The big fish he didn't want to go to Nineveh because he understood that if he went to Nineveh and delivered the message that he was supposed to they had the opportunity to repent and then have judgment spared. Well he hated the Ninevites so he wanted judgment to fall on them so his reasoning for running away was to say you know what I hate them. I want judgment to fall on them so if I do not deliver my message they won't repent and then they will be destroyed. Now if he I'd gotten away with that, that is, that is what would have happened. But understanding the uh, conditional nature of judgment prophecies, um, they, he did go, he delivered, they repented, and judgment was spared. Uh, there's going to be a different approach a little bit today as we sort through the judgments that Hosea brings uh, to Israel, but I think you'll see some of the same conditional nature, just maybe not in the immediate context. Uh, the second kind of rule that we have to understand in interpreting prophecy is the fuller meaning of the, the text. Um, When Hosea, when Jonah goes and delivers their message, they have a meaning, right? They have a willed meaning of what they're trying to communicate. It's like we go to someone to communicate. I know what I am trying to say to them. However, in Scripture, the prophet is delivering the words of God, right? If we're talking about divine inspiration, uh, the prophet is delivering the words of God, and he is moved by the Spirit of God in that sense. So it is possible— common and very typical in Scripture for a prophet to deliver something, we see the immediate parts play out, but then we see something more happen. Um, And it has everything to do with the prophecy. It just wasn't explicitly stated because we, in our finite time, cannot see the fuller understanding or fuller meaning of what God has in store for that prophecy or that judgment. Um, Unfortunately for us, we can only find what the prophet means unless we are, for us, I guess, fortunately, we can look back. In retrospect, we're able to see the fuller meaning happen because we're outside of that context. So God has an intended message. He delivers it. It happens. But then more things happen that have direct correlation to the prophecy. That's the fuller meaning of the prophecy. So we get to see some of that today, which is exciting, as we get to look through some of the judgments. We look to look through some of the the hope and salvation and then see how ultimately in Scripture um, and then... Uh, beyond how it will be fulfilled, that there is a fuller meaning to what Hosea is bringing to the text. So with that, you have a page of notes. Um, We are going to be flying through Hosea, okay? Uh, Fortunately, I have three weeks instead of two, so I get to do a little bit less today, Um, but we are going to be flying. I tried to set up your notes in such a way that you will be able to um, easily follow along, ideally. (laughs) That's the goal um, but also to give you an idea of what kind of room you need. Um, so let's, uh, let's begin with reading Hosea. In chapter 1, the text says this, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said this to him, Go and marry a promiscuous wife, and have children of promiscuity. For the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. So he went and married Gomer, daughter of Deblame. And she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for in a little while I will bring the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and gave birth To a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Name her No no Compassion, or Leruhama, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel. I will certainly take them away. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah, and I will deliver them by the Lord their God. I will not deliver them by bow, sword, or war, or by horses or cavalry. After Gomer had weaned No Compassion, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him not my people. Lo Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Yet the number of the Israelites will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or counted. And in the place where they were told, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And the Judeans and the Israelites will be gathered together. They will appoint for themselves a single ruler and go up from the land. For the day of Jezreel will be great. Call your brothers my people and your sisters compassion. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her. Alright, it's chapter 1 and the beginning of, verse, uh, beginning of chapter 2. With that, what can we do with this? So there are four interpretive guidelines that we're going to be hitting first. Um, these are going to kind of be the foundation uh, for which we build on top of and going through Hosea. Uh, these, are, these are separate conclusions from then the guidelines of understanding how to interpret scripture. Uh, these are just guidelines for Hosea itself. Um, Understand, uh, (laughs) we were paid a very nice compliment on uh, Tuesday night by someone in that home gathering um, who said they they enjoyed our preaching, they enjoyed the way that we do it, um, and I want to remind uh, that person of that today as we deal with a lot of history, um, which may counter uh (laughs) the feelings of that compliment. Um, In order to understand prophecy, you have to understand history. Um, Now, I'm not getting ready to give you an entire uh, thesis on Israel's um, history. We're not starting in Genesis. Uh, we're kind of picking up in the middle. Uh, but what you need to understand first and foremost as we begin this is that the nation of Israel is two separate kingdoms or nations right now. So after David, who then had Solomon and Solomon ruled the nation, split into two sections. We had a southern kingdom, and that is Anybody? It's Judah. And then we have the northern kingdom, which would be the rest of the tribes, and they went by the name Israel. So what's going to be a little bit confusing today is when you hear the word Israel, that sometimes he's going to be talking about just the northern kingdom, and sometimes he's going to be talking about the people of God, the children of God, Israel. Okay? Uh, I will try to clarify that as we go, but just be aware that we're dealing with a little bit of history. So for interpretive guidelines, on your notes you've got this. It says the, the account of Hosea's experiences is literal. It is not allegorical. So this is not allegory but it's enacted prophecy would be the proper genre. This means that the story is not an illustration gleaned from human experience and then applied as a spiritual message, but an actual personal history plotted by Yahweh in which Hosea executes at exquisite personal cost of God's uh, holy purposes. So he, uh, Hosea, this is not an allegory, although John Calvin would say that this is, um, for less than convincing reasons. Um, He would say that Hosea uh is simply standing in front of his disciples the people that he is delivering prophecy to and saying i an upright man imagine me being in a relationship like this that's what he that's what calvin would say um most other most other commentators would say that this is actually true so we're operating under the guideline Um, of it being literal and not allegorical. So Hosea is paying an extreme personal cost in order for God's holy purposes to come about. Uh, And we'll, we'll get to see the depths of that as we move on. So only by living through in his own life what the divine consort of Israel experienced was the prophet able to attain sympathy for the divine situation, a commentator said. So only by Hosea actually living out what we're getting ready to discuss was he able to understand with even the smallest amount uh, the sympathy and understanding and pain that the divine concert of Israel, Yahweh, God, feels. So it brings a different level of power to this than it just being a simple allegory. Number two, the autobiographical account in chapter three is the sequel to the biographical account in chapter one. So today we are going to be covering uh, chapter one all the way through to uh, verse 13. Um, next week we'll move on from there. Uh, so we won't be touching three today, although I thought we were when I originally started preparing, so that's where that comes from. Um, but be, be ready for to see the connections that we're going to talk about um, in structure. Number three, when Gomer married Hosea, she was an ordinary Israelite woman who later became an adulteress and a prostitute. With that, how many of you have read Redeeming Love? Just raise your hand for me. You need to see what kind of presuppositions are coming in here. <laughs> All right. Um, I, I got that on Thursday, um, and so between that and study, I was only able to finish half of it. Um, but I know a lot of you are excited about this <laughs> series simply because of that book, uh, which I think is okay. It's it's very good. Um, however, unlike that, um, well first of all, realize that that is, that is fiction, uh, it is not commentary, it is not interpretation, uh, and she makes that clear as well at the beginning. Um, but. It, This is not Michael Hosea who goes to a brothel and picks out a lady. Uh, This is a man who finds uh, a normal Israelite woman, and then she later falls into this. Number four, the oracles of chapter two are an essential comment on an expansion of the two calls to prophetic action described in chapter one, verse two, and chapter three, verse one. So we're going to see a couple calls um, to Hosea by God to do certain actions, and he could have just gave us the story, but he has given us prophecy, um, judgment, hope, uh, restoration in between to comment on the story so that we have an easier time understanding what's going on and also to further draw the distinction of who God, Yahweh, is trying to d- actually talk to. It's not Gomer, it is Israel. So the first call is the call to Mary. It's fortified by the description of the land's harlotry shapes the tone of impending judgment and judgment that the prophet seeks to avert. We'll see some uh, commentary going to that first call uh, immediately as we begin. And then number two is the call to remarry and love. Strengthened by the assurance of Yahweh's love for Israel it connotes uh, the theme of hope by giving concrete visible form to the wonders of divine forgiveness. A wonder which the prophet celebrates. So originally Hosea is going to attempt to avert disaster understandably so most of us would do that. If we saw a storm coming, we'd go inside. And so he tries to avert it at first. However, Yahweh still brings it. And at the end, though, he sees restoration coming, and he celebrates in that. And that, that's the cycle that we're going to see as we relate it to Hosea and Israel, and then as we relate it to us and the church. So with that, I'm excited. Let's start, all right? Verse 1. Uh, we're going to move rather quickly, and um I've tried to give you a bunch of handlebars to hang on to on your paper, um, so just try to follow that along. So first, the structure. Verse 1 um, is simply just a title. So if you see in structure an A, um, this follows an A, B, 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 A structure, as we've talked about in Ecclesiastes and much of other times. However, it is a slight variation on a the theme, all right? So we have A, B1, B, B1, A1, as they correlate to each other. Um, as you've seen in Bible study with us before. So, um, with that we have first A, the story, one, two through nine. Uh, We have a story that describes judgment. That's the first section. We move from the story then into the commentary. So there are three oracles that follow that. The first is B1, it's chapter one, verse 10 through two, one, is an oracle. The first oracle is about, however, proclaiming hope. So we move from judgment to a proclamation of hope. That's that sharp turn that you saw um, earlier. Uh, We'll discuss that again. After that is uh, B. It's chapter 2, 2 through 13. It's the second oracle. And here we move from a a proclamation of hope to an announcement of judgment. We then move to B1, which is chapter 2, 14 through 23. It's the third and final oracle. And it's an oracle of a proclamation of hope. And ultimately, we find ourselves at A1, which would be chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. It's a story It bookends the first one, and it's a story of hope. So in the structure, we see, um, yeah, uh, hopefully you can, you can see the structure moving through there now. We have two stories that are bookending uh, the chapters with three oracles in between. And we move from judgment to hope, judgment to hope, and then hope again. Why does he do the structure? Why is it important? Well, as you're going to see, ultimately, the first story of judgment is about Hosea. Right? It's Hosea's life, which is an example then for Israel. And then we move into a proclamation of hope for that. But then we see God announcing judgment. Then we go back to a proclamation of hope to come, and then we see Hosea's hope. Ultimately, what does that mean? Why is it important? We go Hosea, God, Hosea, God, Hosea. Chronologically, if you're following time, right, rather than just being written afterwards, we would have Hosea first, right? It would be the entire story of Hosea, explanation. So instead, he splits that in half and moves this in between. And now we get to first see God's proclamation of hope, his proclamation of restoration before any man's restoration or hope gets to come. God comes first, and he places himself there so that we see ultimately Israel being restored, and then we get to see the story played out in that restoration. All right. I didn't get a whole Sunday to do an introduction, so that was it. Um, <laughs> with that, let's go ahead, and uh, we're going to move through this, all right? So the title, 1-1. One, one. You see, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah kings of Judah. That's the southern kingdom. We have four kings announced. Contrast that, then, with the southern kingdom, and of Jeroboam, this is Jeroboam II, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. One king for the northern uh, kingdom. Why why the contrast there? Why would he name four? Ultimately, as far as timing purposes, Hosea's ministry spans the the range of four kings of, of Judah. That's a long time, and it makes sense when you consider marriage, son, daughter, son, right? I mean, you have nine months between all those. You have a weaning after the second one. Um, That's a considerable amount of time, let alone then them grow up and her and the children commit what we're going to see. So it's a long span of time, approximately 40 years. But then, so is Jeroboam the only king of Israel? No, after Jeroboam II, we have his son uh, sits on the throne for six months, is assassinated. Uh, The guy who assassinated him takes the throne and stays there for a month, and then he's assassinated. Uh, The king that assassinated him takes over, and he stays for like 10 years, then they have another guy for like two, and then they have one more guy for like six, and then it's over. And over the course of about 100 years, they have approximately eight kings, uh, which is pretty ridiculous. Uh, they had so much, you're going to see some of the prophecy in here be a counter to this, but there, there's really no king that stands out after Jeroboam II, because God is trying to bring a close to the house of Israel. And so, that's that. Uh, verse 2, we get into the actual, um, the, the text. So, you have uh, be a significant family. Chapter 1, verse 2 through 2-1. Two, this encapsulates the entire message of the book. Um, We're going to see notes of accusations, of threats. We're going to see promises of hope, salvation, uh, that mark the major divisions of the book, that A, B, 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 A. Um, There's going to be a sharp reversal of tone uh, between 9 and 10. It's a reminder that we're not dealing with a chronological order, as I said earlier, but a beautifully edited composition in which the thematic order of theology takes priority over the sequence of events in history. Ultimately, Scripture is not a history book for us. It is a theological Uh, revelation of god so we need to understand that first so what happens there's four episodes or actions that we're going to look at first today the first action is a harlot for a wife hosea is to take a harlot for a wife the second action is a son that speaks of judgment hosea is to father and name a son that speaks of judgment third action a daughter that has shown no pity he is to father a daughter to be shown no pity the fourth action a son that signals divorce he is to father finally a son that will signal divorce So we see a shift in tone between one two through nine and 110 and we'll see it's, it's very abrupt um, it, it'll be incredibly obvious for us so the first action a harlot for a wife. So Hosea is told by God, go and marry a promiscuous wife and have children of promiscuity. For the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. So he went and married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived. So first, I want you to understand that Hosea is potentially as young as 14. You excited, Isaac? Um, <laughs> just turned 14, all right? Hosea, a prophet of God, is told at approximately the age of 14 to go and find a wife. Not entirely uncommon, however, she will be going into promiscuity some years later. That sounds exciting, right? So you're sitting in premarital counseling, and uh, everything is going just swimmingly, right? He's asking the hard questions, uh, he's nailing it, she's nailing it, we're good to go. And at the end, says, so "You have any questions you want to ask me? Some stuff we can work through." Like, yeah, how do I handle her when in, like, you know, 14 years she's sleeping with other guys? And she looks at him and says, like, really? We just nailed all this stuff, and you have a problem with me still? Um, that's the kind of hope that we have to look forward to if we are Hosea. So with that, he's potentially his age is, uh, as young as 14. Uh, and what's interesting is then if you look at that youth, uh, it's very similar, and his experience is very similar to Jeremiah and uh, his calling, and it marks a, a very quiet obedience. To the divine command is even, you know, more notable. It'd be different if this guy was like 25, 30, 40, um, wiser, uh, had spent some time here, uh, and just obeyed God. But for a a young man of 14 to receive the command, go, and then verse three, so he went. Uh, That is that is amazing. That kind of obedience. But God's word was to come through or by Hosea it wasn't a private command um, He is going to do this so that he can proclaim uh, God's word was to come to Israel all right so at the beginning he named Judah and Israel but this message is primarily to the northern kingdom of Israel uh, specifically to the house of Jehu that we see uh, in the naming of the son in action 2. Um, the uh, entire land and people is, is kind of the target of this. So we're going to be, you're going to have to try to follow me here. We're going to be switching between Gomer and Israel, okay? They are basically synonymous, so you don't have to separate too much, but understand that these are going to be correlating to each other. Uh, and it's a little tough if, if you if you can't follow the structure um, to be able to tie that back and forth to each other. It, it, that, that's the, that's the challenge in interpreting this. Um, all right. So there's no mention of feelings or process. The typical Israel uh, practice would be a a long courtship and betrothal. Um, He goes and he marries. Uh, The effectual word of Yahweh was at work and disobedience was unthinkable. Uh, So this is for the land, the whole land, together with its people. Um, They were wantonly engrossed in spiritual fornication, excessive and extreme conduct. Um, You'll see why very clearly in just a moment. Um, What's interesting is if you look at the... If you look at scripture and you're trying to interpret, look for words that are repeated. I don't mean the, I mean solid words, okay? Um, Look at verse 2 just by itself. What word repeats over and over? Wantonness, harlotry, promiscuity, adultery. It depends on what translation you have. But it's going to be there, right, multiple times. Go and marry a promiscuous wife and have children in promiscuity for the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. Three times in one verse, he throws that word out. Three times. It has two meanings. We're talking about literal acts of illicit lust, often with financial gain. So they are literally being promiscuous. It's not just they're cheating, which then would go to our second, meaning that there are religious acts of infidelity. So it's not just that they are leaving the faith or um, worshiping other gods, but they are literally doing this as well, okay? You'll see why in a second. So action two, all right? He marries a harlot for a wife, action 2. He has a son that speaks of judgment. This is chapter 1, 3b through 5. So so she conceived and bore him a son, and the Lord said to him, name him Jezreel. For in a little while I will bring the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. History time, right? What is Jezreel? Why is he naming him Jezreel? Jezreel is the location where Jehu, uh, the king m- way back, uh, was swept to power over Israel on a mighty tide of bloodshed. Right, so he killed like 70 sons of Ahab. Um, he killed all the priests of the temple of Baal. Uh, it just, and the thing is, is he was allowed to by Elisha, like he, gave, he was given permission. But the problem was Jehu's um, accession to the throne, while being pushed by Elisha, Um, even to the sanctioning of some bloodshed, uh, he he overplayed his hand extremely so. Uh, He had a zeal for bloodshed that exceeded all bounds. Anybody that he could get out of his way, he would do so. He was known as a wild chariot driver. Um, That's Florida, all right? Um, All of them like that, all right? Ambition of Jehu uh, outstripped any sense of divine commission. So while Elisha may have commissioned the act and said, hey, you're going to do this, and you're even allowed to kill some people. Um, he went way, way, way too far. His rule also did little to bring a return of worship uh, to God. And So while he did um, kill prophets of Baal, he later then sanctioned the building of altars and temples to Baal. Um, if you're interested in him, you can write down 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 29, 31. All right, so history got to tie a few things together, right? Jehu, former king of Israel, the northern kingdom, swept to power over mighty bloodshed. Now we find a judgment against him. This happened at Jezreel, and he says, for in a little while I will bring the bloodshed of Jezreel, what he did, onto the house of Jehu. Jehu is the current king, or was was the king right before Jeroboam, their sons, so they're a, a house, a dynasty, if you will, okay he's bringing the bloodshed that their great grandfather did on top of them and extinguishing their kingdom. Does that make sense? I get a collective non or negative All right. I'm trying to be careful here with history it's kind of a, kind of a pain um so that's that's what that is. so when he says on that day I will break the bow of Israel, we have to understand another aspect of history of Israel. I'm sorry, I know you guys don't like history, but, but I love it, so suck it up um. Israel's problem right now is twofold. They're worshiping Baal. And that's when I say the the literal promiscuity. They're worshiping Baals. Uh, Baals are particularly uh, fertility gods, which is something that they they needed in that area, especially when you make this comparison. What is the Abrahamic covenant all about? Your people will be as many as the sand on the shores, right? How do you make more sand (laughs) need fertility right um in order to try to jump ahead of god's plan and get to the realization of this covenant or this promise that god made with abraham israel becomes promiscuous and seeks to find ways as sin always does to accomplish what we want even though it's god's plan for us right ahead of god's timing and so if we're dealing with the bales here um that's, their, that's the, one of the primary reasons for this judgment. The second problem that they had is Israel, the northern nation, relied heavily, heavily on its army. It was puffed up and prideful in its army. There are multiple, um, if you look through First uh, and Second Kings, um, tons of examples of uh, just their military conquests, failures, vengeance, more conquests, bloodshed absolute reliance on military power as opposed to Yahweh. So we have them trying to seek blessing through another god. We have them trying to seek security through another god. And ultimately, then we find ourselves here with Hosea saying, you guys have lost it. You are so far away from where you should be. So when he says that he will break the bow of Israel, it's literally the archer's bow, the symbol of military might. When archers come in, and as yeah. you, lesser kingdoms send in their infantry, you just rain them down with arrows, and they are done. And he says he will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Action three, a daughter shown no pity. This is verse six through seven. Um, she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter, and the Lord said to him, name her No Compassion, or Ruhamah." For I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel. I will certainly take them away. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah. So when we see house of, it's an indicator of the northern and southern kingdom. I will have compassion on the house of Judah, and I will deliver them by the Lord their God. I will not deliver them by bow, sword, or war, or by horses and cavalry. All the things you depend on, I'm not going to use to deliver your pseudo-enemy Judah. I, myself, and my power will deliver them. You rely on these things, you do not rely on me. You will be broken. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah. So the daughter, not pitied, or La is even more terrifying than Jezreel, because this is not at all ambiguous. Jezreel, relatively ambiguous. It's a a place of the past and history of an event that happened. It's a location where future things could happen. It's sort of vague even where it is because it's a valley. It's close to Megiddo, where the ultimate battle is going to take place. It's a place of conflict, but it's somewhat ambiguous. So it doesn't have a time. He just says, for in a little while, I will do this. Um, I will break the bow. But now, we have no compassion. And there is no way to misunderstand no compassion. So Yahweh, God had a covenant with Israel, right? Where he's taking care of them. It's the entire reason that they are even exist still is because of his compassion. And now we find that their national identity that is built on God's compassion, the tender commitment of the stronger God to the weaker, the constant parental care that we find from Yahweh to Israel, the keystone of forgiveness that Yahweh expressed with Israel, at Mount Sinai, and they're building golden calves. In the Exodus itself, we see the forgiveness of God. We now see that forgiveness will be withdrawn. All the blessings, all the benefits, every bit of pity that Yahweh had for Israel will now be removed. Their entire national identity is being trashed. Action 4. The son that signals divorce. Chapter 1, 8 through 9. After Gomer had weaned no compassion, she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said, Name him not my people, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. A child named not my people, or lo ami, was weaned. It means considerable time has passed. And what's interesting is. All of the future tenses of these, um, these judgments are future, and they're not immediate. And in this time that Hosea is building his family, I mean, there's some forbearance and long-suffering love of God to be laying this out, both forbearance and long-suffering in the part of Hosea and in who he represents in Yahweh. And so we find ourselves ultimately at the climax of these actions, that there's a total change in God's relationship to Israel. Not only has he pronounced judgment in the breaking of the nation, he removes his pity and the forgiveness that they stand on. And ultimately, he then has a son who signals divorce. And completely removing, you are not my people, disowning. It's a total change in God's relationship to Israel. The waywardness has effectively annulled the covenant. Israel has gone so Far with this, that they have effectively annulled the Abrahamic covenant. They're spoken directly to as uh, as the people of Israel. The son's name not only describes how Israel has behaved as if they did not belong to Yahweh, but they've also declared God's response of separating himself from them. So we find ourselves at the end of these four actions and at the end then if you look at your structure end of the story of judgment so now we have an incredibly sharp left turn let's read verse 9 again name him not my people for you are not my people and I will not be your God yet the number of the Israelites will be like the sand of the sea which cannot be measured or counted and in the place where they were told You are not my people. They will be called sons of the living God. And the Judeans and the Israelites, north and south, will be gathered together, united. They will appoint for themselves a single ruler and go up from the land. For the day of Jezreel will be great. Call your brothers my people and your sisters compassion. So we enter into Salvation Speech 1, the first oracle. There should be a space in there. Uh, There's nothing specific I want you to write, uh, but just just listen to some of how the tone changes and what he's addressing. Having moved from such a sharp pronouncement of judgment, you are not my people, to his salvation speech. It's just an initial glimmer of hope. The tone changes, and Hosea's prophetic voice becomes, um, becomes prominent. So we move um, from God really having said, um, name him, the Lord said, not my people, right? The Lord said to him, name her no compassion. The Lord said to him, name him Jezreel. My Bible kind of condenses, uh, the stuff that, that God is saying specifically, and then opens back up for the stuff that, um, is either narrative or is just Hosea speaking. Um, so here we move then to Hosea becoming a prominent voice. Um, We go from a a negative, depressing judgment to a positive salvation commitment, not judgment at all. In fact, it's an incredibly awkward (laughs) transition moving from I hate you to bipolar. Oh, I love you, right? I mean, that's kind of what we feel. So we have a promise of restoration. So, I mean, it's there. What do we do with it? How do we break this down after what he just said? I will not be your God, yet I will call you sons of the living God. How do we handle uh, this change. So despite whatever destruction or decimation reduces their numbers and judgment, God will keep his word to the patriarchs and restore their size. So he says that your people will be like the sand of the seas, right? It's innumerable. Innumerable amounts of people. Just because he pronounces judgment does not mean he is canceling the covenant. So if they have a thousand people, they have way more than that. If they have a thousand people and he reduces them down to 250, can he still not yet restore them to 10,000? Yes, he can do that. So that. That's kind of what we get ready to see. He is going to effectively get rid of the problem so that ultimately we, they can flourish. It sounds similar to what he does now? Just because he punishes us for sin doesn't mean that he's not going to take us to where he wants to make us, right? He's not going to leave us there. He's not going to judge us and destroy us and leave us there on ourselves. He has promised to complete the good work that he has started. and He will bring it to completion. So we see interesting, interesting stuff here, all right? So we've got to deal with the Baals again. The fertility god of Baals is a false god. Shocked? No, not me either. All right. So he says the living God, right? Sons of the living God. So God, the one who's alive, not the statue that they're pouring all their resources and hope into, the living God, not the fake God, will affect the miracle. God starts throwing some punches at Baal. He's getting ready to knock him all the way down. And this anticipates the defeat of the Baals in chapter 2. And it attributes a self-sustaining, life-giving character to Israel's God that exposes the impotence of the fertility cult to which Israel was so fatally attracted. So to their decimation, to their destruction, they are so attracted to the bales and the promises that he offers. And God is saying, I am so much more powerful, and I will effect this miracle that what you worship right now can't even produce anything. It produces absolutely nothing. It's absolutely impotent. Verse 11, we read that together. And the Judeans and the Israelites will be gathered together. They will appoint for themselves a single ruler. The uniting of the kingdom and the appointment of one head um, is, is a sign of ultimate restoration. So we're moving from Solomon to the split. Ultimately, we'll see them combined again into one nation. So as sin had marred the kingdoms and led to Yahweh's withdrawal of his pity, so divine grace and consistency will triumph and redeem them. As much as man has messed this up, God is so much more gracious and he is so much more faithful that because of him alone, him alone in this covenant that he initiated, he maintains, and he completes, will he redeem them. So then we say, for the day of Jezreel will be great. The word Jezreel begins a sequence in which each tri- each child is transformed from a sign of judgment to a sign of grace. What's cool is Jezreel, as we said earlier, was was pretty ambiguous, right? It's deliberately ambiguous. God will both scatter in judgment and then sow in restoration. So he is, he is scattering them in judgment that we're going to see when he breaks Israel. And he breaks the house of Jehu and breaks the bow, as we saw. He's going to break that and scatter them, but ultimately then in the uniting kingdom, he's going to sow in restoration. What's cool about the other two names, not pitied and no compassion, we have the word not in front of him. And ultimately that means that the negative force can be removed. So now it's pitied, compassion just the name itself allows us to see that it's conditional so the change of name reflects in, in, in Hebrew culture a change of status, character destiny, we see that in the New Testament even, with Saul who became Paul All Right in the Old Testament in particular we're following the pattern then of Abram to Abraham Sarai to Sarah and Jacob to Israel we see a transformation of character, status, privilege, and destiny, all wrapped up in the name. So briefly, real quick, just to see how some of this does play out. We've, we've named four actions. We see the structure. We get that. How does some of this play out? Let's get a little bit of resolution before we continue on and, and then finish. There are fulfillments to Hosea's prophecies, okay? Fulfillments to these things. It's kicked off by the Assyrian invasion. So w- when they move into exile, that kind of kicks off this whole, this whole thing. That's what he's talking about, the breaking. So the first thing that you have is a return from exile. They will return. They will be reunited. The Judeans and the Israelites will be gathered together. They will appoint um, a single ruler. And we find that then in the birth of Jesus as Messiah. We find birth of Jesus as Messiah as a further fulfillment of Hosea's prophecies. So we talked earlier about the fuller meaning of the text. That's what this is. Hosea didn't know that. God did. So we can understand what Hosea meant, and it is complete. But there's a fuller meaning that God has for the entire redemptive plan of salvation that we get to see then. So, birth of Jesus as Messiah, third formation of the church. The formation of the church, and ultimately, finally, the return of Christ Jesus. The return of Christ Jesus will complete this entire What's cool about the, incorpor- the formation of the church is we see the incorporation of Gentiles um, into the covenant. So, originally the Abrahamic covenant, all about the Israelites, right? In the formation of the church in Acts, we see that the Gentiles are brought into that covenant with the same promises. And in that, we get to kind of see how the Gentiles, who were not pitied and had no compassion on them, now are pitied and have compassion on them. And they're brought into the covenant to share with the Israelites and in the return of Christ Jesus is the full display of God's sovereign love and his perfect, perfect judgment. So we move on then to the judgment speech, the second oracle. The second oracle is an announcement of judgment. This section fulfills the prediction implied by action one where Yahweh commanded Hosea to take a wife of Harlotry. We say when we see that he took a wife of a promiscuous wife and have children of promiscuity what does that mean for us it means that her promiscuity has affected the children so we move out of this promise then into chapter two let, let us read our text together again we're going to read all the way through uh, verse 13 it says rebuke your mother rebuke her for she is not my wife and i am not her husband Let her remove the promiscuous look from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and expose her as she was on the day of her birth. I will make her like a desert, like a parched land, and I will let her die of thirst. I will have no compassion on her children because they are the children of promiscuity. Yes, their mother is promiscuous. She conceived them and acted shamefully. For she thought, I will go after my lovers, the men who give me my food and water, my wool and flax, my oil and drink. Therefore, this is what I will do. I will block her way with thorns. I will enclose her with a wall so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers but not catch them. She will seek them but not find them. Then she will think I will go back to my former husband, for then it was better for me than now. She does not recognize that it is I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil. I lavish silver and gold on her, which they used for bail. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. And I will take away my wool and linen, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will expose her shame in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her from my hands. I will put an end to all her celebrations, her feasts, new moons and Sabbaths, all her festivals. I will devastate her vines and fig trees. She thinks that these are her wages that her lovers have given her. I will turn them into a thicket and the wild animals will eat them. And I will punish her for the days of the Baals, when she burned incense to them, put on her rings and jewelry, and went after her lovers, but forgot me. This is the Lord's declaration. Again, we have a bit of a a bipolar feeling twist, all right? Why does God move? Why does Yahweh move from this judgment to hope, judgment and then hope, ultimately? Why does he do that? Remember earlier when I talked about um, interpreting prophecy, what's the first part? That judgments are conditional. Have you seen a condition yet in here? There isn't. We need to be careful in interpreting prophecy that we understand that some things will happen. God will judge the Israelites and ultimately for us, he will judge us. There's no condition on it. There were conditions earlier. There was prophecy before this that had conditions that if they repented they would be restored. So now we find ourselves in Hosea where there's no condition. There's not a condition for them um, to repent in order to alleviate judgment. He at this point is, if, if you will, at the end of his rope. He has tried, he has given them second chances, there has been the opportunity for repentance, but at this point, he is simply judging them to protect them for their best interest. And so we move into a, a picture uh, that's painful. Um, and parents, this is PG thirteen. Um, I don't mean that in a funny way. Um, this is this is pretty terrifying. Okay, we're moving from the story of Hosea having his, his children to then the, the promiscuity. The prostituting that she uh, relents herself to. And then we get to see here a, a very powerful picture, um, and, and even more so for me now being in marriage, even as short it has been, to see the picture of what it looks like for the wife to leave the husband. Now, in our culture, it's typically flipped, right? We have retarded men who just drop all responsibility and do their own thing. Um, but for as, a, for as a man, as a, a leader of the church, a, what God has been calling me to, to see this picture, is incredibly painful. And um, all that much more astute as, as a result. So we look at what Yahweh feels for his bride that has run away. For this section, you have a giant space. You can go to the back as well. I'm going to... Um, basically I'll give you a couple verses we're going to talk about them. I'm going to give you a couple of verses we're going to talk about them a couple verses talk about them um, before we get into that this section fulfills the, the prediction um, her prom- uh, promiscuity has affected her children we don't know um, whether they are themselves are being promiscuous um, that doesn't necessarily have any bearing on how to interpret this if they were um, what is important is to understand that um, one of the major um, characters of the children's lives is involved in this activity and it is going to have consequences no matter how good he is on the children. Um, So um, we go from pictures of that spiritual and political prosperity of a united kingdom and being my children to the darkness under the storm clouds of judgment. So verse 2 and 3, rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. So the rebuke or plead or make your case, it signals the finality of the opportunity. This is it, okay? This is it. Plead with her, make your case. This is it. Gomer's flagrant sin must be dealt with now or never. This is it. It says, for she, and then later, and I, it, it signals that divorce that we saw in action for. says, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. That signals divorce lest we see um, let her remove the promiscuous look from her face and her adultery from between her breasts otherwise or or lest I will strip her naked It signals contemplation alright so we're going from the signal of a divorce she is not acting in this way and not allowing me to fulfill my role it signals divorce but it's not happened yet the lest gives us the understanding that what happened just before that is contemplation okay But it's urgent, hence the plead. Make your case. This is it. What is heartbreaking is that the the nouns that she uses, uh, or that he uses, let her remove her promiscuous look, her face, and her adultery from between her breasts. The nouns that are describing the behavior are plural. Uh, It's an indication to us of the intensity of the sin. It's not one man. It's not just running away for a relationship that's not her husband. This is repeated sin. We look at the objects that she's supposed to remove, let her remove the promiscuous look from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Victoria's Secret, okay? Objects that increase sensuality, remove those things. Um, Those things, not Victoria's Secret itself, but in public, that can make you look lewd, right? Um, They need to be removed in order to signal a change of heart. So we're talking about a physical change that helps show inward repentance, right? Sound familiar? So then we again look at the otherwise in verse 3 or less. Um, this introduces a series of threats of discipline in which Gomer, unless she makes a clean break, here's your bit of a, a chance, will be stripped naked and removed from the blessings of her present life to a wilderness setting that will threaten her very existence. She has the opportunity here to destroy herself. The nakedness that we see in verse 3 seems part of a rite of embarrassment akin to what Yahweh promised Jerusalem in Ezekiel chapter 16. It's intentional embarrassment in order to bring about repentance. The make her has a double meaning. So when he says that I will make her like a desert um, and expose her as the day she was on her birth, it has a double meaning. It's first Gomer's natal day on which she arrived stark naked, right? Your birthday suit. There's that meaning, and then we have the separate meaning of Israel's natal day, the exodus and the wilderness wandering. From Egypt they left as a nation, and it was the deliverance of God, and they were a new nation in that moment. move on to 4 and 5. It says, I will have no compassion on her children, a continuation of the threats. Because they are the children of promiscuity, yes, their mother is promiscuous. She conceived them. And acted shamefully, for she thought, I will go after my lovers, the men who gave me my food and water, my, fu- my wool and my flax, my oil and drink. God has made clear in the beginning, in chapter 1, verse 2, that the children are wrapped in a bundle with their mother's sin. Go find a woman and have children that are the same. Because they're, they're a package deal. Uh, and it has to do with both their sin and the judgment that comes with it. And there's three possibilities when you look at the children um, one, that the children are illegitimate and that Hosea or Yahweh is not their father. That doesn't seem to fit with the text and the judgment and the understanding of Gomer to Israel and then Israel's children, the people of Israel being Gomer's child. Um, so I don't think that that is it. Um, there's a potential that the children engage in fornication themselves. Um, that doesn't, whether that's true or not doesn't really have any bearing on the prophecy. Uh, But ultimately, what what does matter is that the children are contaminated by their mother's fornication. It's not that the sins are passed down. It's that the results of the sin are ultimately always going to have an impact on others. So the third view is most likely, um, because it's not foreign to the Hebrew nation, for the actions and guilt even of Israel as a whole, uh, or even in the personal, then to have impact on the family. So we look at Achan. And the conquering that was happening with Joshua, they walk into Ai, and they have great victory. But they are told told to not take any spoils at all from the city, but to burn everything. And Achan brings back with himself some treasure and some, some items that he found in Ai, and buries them in his tent. And God tells Joshua to go and find them. They find it. They kill Achan, and they kill his entire family. This shared guilt is not uncommon and, and would not seem weird uh, to, the, to the Israelites. So when we look at the children then being thrown into the mix with the promiscuity of the mother, it, it makes sense. You can look in Joshua chapter 7 uh, for that example. The entire context, the major person in children's life was steeped in harlotry. So the mother, the nurturing person, has men coming and going, is going to men. The lovers, obviously, are the Baals. She's pursued the Baals. Um, the literal reading for this, remember, promiscuity, harlotry has two meanings, the the nation and also her. She literally is going um, and worshiping at the temple of Baals by having sex with the priests in order to promote fertility. That, that's the whole point. And so you want to tell me that Christianity is a man-made religion? That is a man-made religion, Okay. For a priest to be there and say, come, I will help you be fertile. Um, you can come tomorrow if it doesn't work as well, uh, or the day after that, right? And We'll make this happen. That's a man-made religion. But the, all, the whole point of that sin is to try to speed up the promises of God, to make it happen on our own rather than to trust his providence and his power. She has, an era, she has in an era of cosmic dimensions, credited the bales with what can only be the gifts of Yahweh. She's claimed all benefit is her own, and that's a, a twofold error the credit to the wrong giver, and the possessiveness of a selfish recipient. So she is saying that they give me the rewards, right? I will go after my lovers, the men who give me my food and water, my wool and my flax, my oil to drink. They are not the providers. God is. And she's saying that they are mine, not ours. Where's Hosea in this picture? Where's he at? She's on her own, doing her own thing. So we enter into verse 6 and 7. Therefore, what is the therefore? Therefore, right? Therefore, this is what I will do. I will block her way with thorns. I will enclose her with a wall so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers but not catch them. She will seek them but not find them. Then she will think, I will go back to my former husband, for it was better for me than now. Really? Awesome. All right, so the judgment therefore. What's the therefore? Therefore, we're switching from what she has done to how God responds. But so in this moment, stop thinking about Israel, stop thinking about Gomer, and think about you. Think about yourself. Think about what it would be like for your spouse to abandon you in such a manner. Think about what we do to God. Because in these coming verses, we get to see, as we close, exactly how God feels. Maybe not exactly. Because sin in itself is anything that is contrary to God's nature. Okay? So we can't understand that. Okay? I can recite that. Uh, I intellectually understand that it's something that is against God's character. It's something that just doesn't match. That makes sense to me. Okay? So I have two different reds. They don't match each other. That's different. There are different things that's not as it should be. Understanding from the perspective of my spouse doing these actions changes the game a little, okay? I can understand the pain a little bit more now, right? I think this is the closest that we can come to really understanding the effects of sin in our life. I think that's why he chooses such a powerful picture, really, that kind of is parallel to uh, the Song of Solomon. we look at that picture of love, and then we look at this, and then even within Hosea, we see the proclamations of hope in contrast to these judgments. this is, This is the easiest way, I think, for us to really <laughs> break our hearts over our sin for God. Let's look at how he feels. so the the judgment that he's getting ready to proclaim that he has he is saying is appropriate to Israel's lustful chase. And the point is to cut her off from her lovers, okay? I will block her way. So he is taking action to stop her from being able to even go to her lovers. It's a case of judgment by frustration. So he is judging her in this moment by preventing her from doing what she wants. And what is that going to do? It's going to frustrate her, obviously, right? So that judgment is frustration. But its purposes are positive and gracious, no matter how vexing it may have seemed So when somebody, a parent, when you are parenting your children and you tell them no to protect them, it doesn't make sense to them. And what's insulting to our American intelligence is we read this and we look at this as us being parented. Don't talk to me like you're my parent. We have to sometimes when we are so deep in our sin and so ignorant of the destruction that we are going to, that we need somebody to come in and absolutely take over for us. And it's insulting to us, but we can't step away from our pride to say, I need this. I need you to judge me by frustrating me. I need you to protect me. So he stops her, and, and it's, it's positive, it's gracious. He's seeking to protect her from her wanton and urges that could only produce further harm for her and her children. It was aimed to thwart her heated pursuits of the Baals, so that she would change her mind and return to Yahweh. We are looking for repentance. If you look at his assertiveness, make note of how how drastic of a step and how powerful of a force he is asserting himself. And then ultimately he says, I will go. I'm sorry, she says, I will go. She is comparing then the orgies of Baal that she wants to go to, to then ultimately we see the better of my husband. I will go back to my former husband. That's what he is trying to get her to think, right? I will go back to my former husband, for it was better for me than it was at the orgies of Baal. Verse 8-13 through 13. She does not recognize that it is I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil. I lavish silver and gold on her, which they used for Baal. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time and my new wine in its season, I will take away my wool and linen, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I I will expose her shame in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her from my hands. I will put an end to all her celebrations, her feasts, new moons and Sabbaths, all her festivals. I will devastate her vines and fig trees. She thinks that these are her wages that her lovers have given her. I will turn them into a thicket, and the wild animals will eat them. And I will punish her for the days of the bales. And she burned incense to them, put on her rings and jewelry, and went after her lovers, but forgot me. Verse 8. Much has to happen before repentance, the I will go back to my husband is a reality. She did not know. You see, she does not recognize, she did not know, depends on what your translation says. What God is looking for is intimacy, loyalty, and obedience, right? That, that is what is a hallmark of a good relationship. Loyalty, intimacy, obedience. So to know is to act as the covenant requires. The covenant requires intimacy, loyalty, and obedience. And so to know that and to act in accordance with it is synonymous. So to not know is to fly in the face of covenantal allegiance. And what, what happens here is we see not just in ignorance. Ignorance can be more readily excused, all right. So if you just don't know and you never were told, that's one thing. But to know and then to forget is entirely another problem. So failure to recognize Yahweh's provision of necessities and luxuries um, given in the magnificent abundance. So he lavished silver, gold, right? That is not just I gave her some, go get some bread. It's here you go. A lavish on top of her. He gave these things. And then she's putting it to shameful use in crafting idols. In verse 9, therefore, again, it introduces the inevitable consequence of such rejection. Literally, I will return and take back. Plays off of verse 7, I will go back. So we see a little bit of that poetry happening in here. He's referencing back to her. I will go back to my husband where it was better. And he's saying, I will go back and take away so that you understand what you really have. The picture is almost vicious. To take away means to snatch away or tear off. So we see first the physical deprivation of loss of wool for the the cold, the loss of the flax for the summer. But then ultimately we see then the shame and disgrace in being unclothed or naked, Uh, even to the extent of genital exposure in public, okay? Uh, It's not just at home, I don't have anything to wear, the door's closed. This is in public, he's going to strip away to shame, to disgrace, the rights of embarrassment. And so then the nakedness threat of verse uh, 3 of chapter 2 is made explicit in verse 10. So now I will expose her shame in the sight of her lovers. So the force of this passage is the combination of these. The lewdness or brazen folly which may, that has resulted in this gross nudity. The lewdness uncovered to reveal or lay bare and totally disclose. I play off of verse 9 of covering, so the opposite of that. He is uncovering now what he has given her in the sight of her lovers, before their very eyes, to achieve maximum exposure of her shame before the Baals. And then ultimately, the inability to be rescued. Now this is synonymously a, a symbol of his power, and a sign of the Baals' impotence. So she's in the hand of God, being exposed for what she is. And the gods that she worships cannot deliver her. He says, I will put an end to, we're talking about causing to cease. Only God has that power. So then we talk about the feast that she's claimed for herself, right? I will take my grain back, God says, when she's saying that it was her reward. Those feasts then were supposed to be part of Israel's culture, right? And Israel, through syncretism, then turns those to Baal. You see Jezebel and Ahab, you guys are familiar with them. She's taking Israel's culture and purposely bringing in Baal in order to have a syncretous relationship where it's one and the other. And ultimately when you do that, God says, I will not be a part of that. So what's interesting is she's claiming all these wages, but then he says, I will go and take back my grain. I will take my wine, I will take away my wool, my linen, and I will take it all. So now, when you go to have your feast that was supposed to be for me and Baal, Baal, who's the fertility god, who's supposed to cause all this harvest, and you're going to have your giant banquet for him, you're not going to have anything. If you need something, just have Baal provide it. It should be utterly dependent on God, and he just withholds their means to celebrate. So ultimately, we find ourselves with Israel standing bare before the Baals whose favor she courted. She's standing in front of Baal saying, Let's have a feast because you are our provider. Well, we have nothing because God has removed it. So she earlier claimed selfishly all these things, and now he removes them himself. So the festivals that she has claimed all this other stuff for, he gives the festivals to her. You, yeah, you go ahead and have those. They are given to her as she has earned them. They are the results and the wages for her actions. He doesn't want them anymore. They are hers. Verse 12, we finally see God's appalling devastation as it moves from the perverted feast to Israel's familiar symbols of prosperity and security. So he even goes all into Israel's identity of the grapes and the fig trees. And he removes those. What's crazy is she again... They're they're called hers, right? In verse 12, she thinks that these are her wages that her lovers have given her. I will take them. I will take them. She claimed them to be be entitled to them, to own them as her rightful pay, as if it was her reward for giving herself to the Baals. And she then again calls them my lovers and went after her lovers. And so we find ourselves today ending with but forgot me so we talked about to know him and the covenant earlier to forget me is the opposite Is the counterpart to know Gomer Israel us we reject the knowledge of God and forget that God is the one who provides. For us to reject the knowledge of God is is a parallel idea to forgetting God. We forgot him. It combines the characteristic attitudes with which Yahweh faces his need to judge. So as we encounter God judging Israel in Scripture, the God of hate, the God who loves to smite. We like to see that part, and we forget how his attitude is when he does it. We do see the firmness with which he judges, that he's a just God. We see intense sadness. Imagine Hosea standing there with his wife having left him, and engaging in these activities, and we see the sorrow in God and Yahweh when he says, but forgot me. So to forget God is to act as though he had never made himself known that he had never redeemed his people in the exodus he had never provided for them in the land or that he had never laid his graciousness and constraining claims on them to forget God is to say you did nothing for me you kept yourself secret you didn't reveal yourself to me You've not acted graciously, protected nurtured we find ourselves with God at a loss of words you forgot me and we know there's hope coming up it's all in the structure there's two things of hope right we know how the story ends with Hosea right we know that let's not rush ahead Let's not look at the book, Redeeming Love, and only see the love of which Michael Hosea expresses for his bride. Let's not look at this story of Hosea and only see the luring back, the the provision of the endless love, unconditional love, that surely is a major theme of what God wants us to see. But let's not rush to that and forget the, the pain and the sorrow that our sin brings to a holy, perfect God. He has made himself known. He's redeemed his people in the Exodus. He redeems us from our sin now. He provides for us daily. and He is gracious towards us and has included us, all of us Gentiles, into the covenant. We end with declares the Lord. Makes crystal clear, while Hosea may have begun the passage addressing his children, Yahweh's voice soon replaced the prophets. And Israel, not Gomer, becomes the target of the judgment. As we end today, as we have um, Valentine's Day coming up, um, I want to end with a song about how deep the Father's love is for us. And again, don't rush ahead to just the love and the deepness of his love. Understand why his love has to be unconditional. Because if it was conditional, we'd be done it would all be over. Let's go ahead and pray, and the band will come up, and we'll sing one final song together. Holy Father, God, I thank you so much for who you are. Lord, it breaks my heart to imagine my spouse committing these acts. And Father, then to have to take that pain, that anger, and then place it on myself. Understand that that's what I do to you daily. Father, it's so easy then for me to want to echo daily. Psalm of David Father, restore in me a clean spirit return to me the joy of my salvation Father, let me find my pleasure in you and not in the things of this world Father, not in myself not in the things that you've provided and Father, not even in the future, but what you have for me and for us now Would you are gracious to us are patient with us you are long suffering for us and Father you are always always faithful what a relief it is to know that you will never run from us Father you will never leave us what joy it brings to understand that you are all that we need Father, we thank you for who you are. For all this in your son's name. Amen.